Let us open the precious Word of God to Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, and I hope that while we're turning to that chapter in the Bible, you'll remember what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 15. I found thy words, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Amen. We just sang how firm a foundation, and in the Trinity hymnal, it tells us at the top that it's taken from Isaiah 41 and verse 10, because that's the second verse there, which we're going to find. Isaiah 41.10 is a very popular verse, but I want us to learn the context around it. Maybe we'll appreciate it even more than we have before in Isaiah 41.10. In this chapter, God comforts Israel. Remember, the previous chapter began with, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. And there are many chapters of comfort that follow here in the book of Isaiah. God comforted Israel after their chastening, and we had about 39 chapters predominantly dedicated to chastening, now followed by comforting, by declaring His supreme power and His supreme foresight, especially in the matter of one Cyrus the Great of Persia. And so He's going to declare how great He is in power and how great He is in foresight, and there is no other God and the Jews could rely on him and not be afraid of any of the huge upheavals in the world, politically and nationally, because he was with them and he would bless them. Right. Faith is the means of a good report. Hebrews 11:2. By faith, the elders obtained a good report. So we want to have the faith that they had in Hebrews chapter 11, that God can give us a good report card. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Amen. We want to increase in faith, and the Bible tells us, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. It may sound trivial, and you may wonder, really? But the little outlines that I give you for some of these chapters are very helpful. Maybe I'm not as smart or bright as you in looking at the Word of God, but breaking a chapter of 29 verses into 10 different parts that are pretty obvious helps me reduce it to bite-sized morsels that I can get my mind around. Right. And so we're going to take this chapter apart in 10 different ways so that you can see the little sections and the little lesson being taught in each one. In some of the obscure chapters earlier in Isaiah, our blessing from heaven was to see its context. As soon as we realized that a chapter of Isaiah was, ah, this is Sennacherib and the Assyrians against Hezekiah and Judah, as soon as we could see that by a... a by a hint in a verse or a, a statement in a verse, then the chapter falls into place. Right. And we see every verse in light of that context. In these chapters now, we want to see the lessons develop through the chapter. And that's why these little parts help us. And I hope they'll help you today. This chapter follows 39 chapters of a lot of judgment. And this chapter is talking about the deliverance from Babylon, 
which was their final great judgment in captivity, and being restored to Jerusalem, building the temple, and it reaches even to Christ in some of these chapters between now and the end of the book of Isaiah. But let's look at our verses for today in this chapter. Isaiah 41, the first lesson is in verse 1. Isaiah 41 and verse 1. Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. Amen and amen. amen. This is God calling the idolatrous Gentile nations of the world to a debate. This is God calling the pagans of the world to a debate. O islands is a statement in the Bible. Sometimes they're called isles. Sometimes they're called islands. Sometimes they're called the nations. Sometimes they're called the Gentiles. But it's referring to the unbelieving nations around Israel. Because there's going to be a large event taking place affecting the nations in the area of the world where Israel was located, and God is calling them to a debate. He'll introduce the topic of the debate in the next lesson, which starts in verse 2. But right now, this is my God, this is your God. Amen. Reading challenges like this thrill me. Right. And I don't know why challenges like this are not preached more often. <laughs> Keep silence before me. Oh, you Gentile pagan idolaters, O oh, islands, and let the people renew their strength. Get some good sleep. Get some good nutrition. Do some serious study. Make sure you go to Harvard's Theological Seminary. Get prepared. Then come near. Then I will let you speak. Come near together to judgment, and let's have a debate and see who wins about who is a god who is the God. And so that's the first verse of Isaiah 41. It's not very complicated. But once you get verse 1 down, oh yes, this chapter is going to be good because it's going to be a debate between God and idolaters. God and all other religions. And brethren, do you know how blessed you are today that we are not on a tour bus making our way toward Mecca? Why aren't we? Or Jerusalem. We don't care about Jerusalem on this world, in this world, on this earth, any more than we care about Mecca. Or we could be going to Salt Lake City. Or we could be in St. Peter's in Rome, Italy. None of those places matter to us. We have God's religion. He's revealed it to us. And He wants to debate any other false religion. In this case, it's the idolaters around the nation of Israel. God told pagan Gentile idolaters to stop their ordinary talking to prepare for a formal debate. Forget your nonsense that you put in practice at home and the simple people follow you to the altars of your gods. Just stop all that nonsensical talking. Get some strengths. Prepare yourself. We're going to see it again. You want to see it again? Look at verse 26. It's verse 21. Verse 21, we're going to come back to this theme of a debate all the way through the chapter. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. And that is why the Lord is challenging 
these pagan idolaters to get some strength and to do some research and some study so that they have something intelligent to say that is worthy to hear. This is our God. He's challenging to a debate. Let the people renew their strength. Get strong. Then come near. Then let them speak. Notice, he shuts down one kind of speech to encourage a different kind of speech. Forget your ordinary nonsense that your citizens believe. Come up with something real and share it with me. Let's come together and see who really is God. I love this. So when we come into these nine chapters of Isaiah 40 hmm, through 48, we have nine chapters of God's glory and Him boasting about Himself. Stop talking while you apply yourselves diligently to get some strong reasons, like that 21st verse described. When you're fully prepared, then come to me, and we will have a debate about who is God. You should love this language. Everyone that's read the Bible knows that Elijah mocked Baal and his prophets, but this is God himself mocking. And I, I love it so much. Since the world has imagined and invented gods, the true God likes to ridicule them. Why are there so few pulpits that want to preach on the behalf of the glory of God and Him ridiculing all comers? The next lesson is in verses 2 through 4. This is the topic of the debate. Who raised up the righteous man from the east? called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings. He gave them as the dust to his sword and as driven stubble to his bow. He pursued them and passed safely, even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. Amen. I am the one that did this. I am the one that raised up this man from the east. So the topic of the debate is Cyrus the Persian. Where is Iran? It's in the news. Let's see. I believe I read this week that of registered voters, only one quarter can put their finger on Iran on a map. That is disgusting. Iran is Persia. It was a great empire. It's to the east of Iraq, which is to the east of Syria and Saudi Arabia and Israel. But nonetheless... You know, you can see all those things easily on a map. But let's look very quickly at this to make sure we understand it about Cyrus the Persian. Who raised up the righteous man from the east? Persia is directly east of Babylon and directly east of Israel. And that is where Cyrus the Persian came from. Look at Isaiah 46. It's only a few chapters over. We're going to get there in a few weeks. Isaiah 46 calling a ravenous bird from the east. A man that executes my counsel from a far country. Oh yeah, Isaiah 46, 11. 
You know, we don't have time to go into all the details about Cyrus because over the next few weeks, we're going to run into Cyrus repeatedly in these chapters of the 40s in the book of Isaiah. At, in the last verse of chapter 44, he'll be named. In the first verse of 45, he'll be named Cyrus, the Persian. Cyrus was a Persian and Darius was a Mede. They were both related to each other. One was the uncle, Darius was the uncle of Cyrus and so forth. They were connected and it was called the Media Persia Empire for just a little while because then Media just disappeared in importance and it became the Persian Empire. And when you get into the book of Daniel, it will say that that empire, which was represented by the symbol of a bear, rose up on one side, meaning that it was initially the power of Darius, but the side that came up later was the more powerful one, and that was Persia, because there would be Xerxes of the Persian Empire that would send anywhere from one to five million men on up to 10,000 ships the length of the Mediterranean to say against Greece from Persia. Tremendous numbers in that empire. Back to Isaiah 41, where we're studying today. Isaiah 41 and verse 2, Who raised up the righteous man from the east? That is Cyrus the Persian from the east. He also came from the north. You say, don't confuse me. I was all settled that Iran is east of Babylon. It is. But there's another part to that empire. And he used their soldiers and their engineers to take the city of Babylon. And it was from the north where the Medes were. So it says in verse 25 of this chapter, I have raised up one from the north. Uh-oh. Is he from the north or from the east? Well, let me read the rest of 25. I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come from the rising of the sun. Does your sun rise in the north or does it rise in the east? Is this the Lord saying he came from both places? Yes, because it was the media Persian Empire. Sometimes, like Isaiah 13, it names the Medes. Other times, it names Persia. But the two of them together, Media was north of Babylon, Persia was east of Babylon, both are true. So, to the question, did Cyrus come from the north or the east? Yes. Thank you, Lord. It's not difficult. Who raised up the righteous man? Now, he's called a righteous man because he executed God's righteousness. And that is judgment on Babylon to free his people. Look at 45.13. And I, we need to go quickly because we have a lot of verses in front of us. I, just, I want you to get the lesson and embrace the God that loves to boast and wants to take on all comers in a debate. And here's the topic. Who raised up Cyrus to overthrow Babylon in one night and send the Jews back with all their loot from Nebuchadnezzar to rebuild their city and their temple? Who did it? I, the Lord. I am the first, and I am with the last. I am he. I did it. None of your gods can do anything, as he will say. Isaiah 45, 13, I have raised him up in righteousness. You say, who's this talking about? Verse 1, thus saith the Lord to his anointed. God anointed this man and made him special for this military campaign to Cyrus. And then the last verse of 44, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. I raised him up in righteousness to execute my will against Babylon and to save my people. Let's get back to Isaiah 41 and verse 2. God is asking a question. 
Who raised up the righteous man from the east? Who raised up Cyrus the Great, the Persian? Called him to his foot. When you call someone to your foot, that is like a servant that you are going to direct to do all your will. That's a, Cyrus the Great is called Cyrus the Great for a great reason. He was great. But God called him to his foot to give him his commands on what he's going to do. Flip back to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Ezra, after 2 Chronicles. This is one of the great events in world history. In God's opinion, it is one of the greatest events in world history. World military history. World empire history. This is it. The overthrow of the Babylonian Empire and its replacement by the Persian Empire and Cyrus issuing a decree that the church of God should go home from Babylon 900 miles, rebuild their city, I'll help pay for it, and I'll protect you on the other side of the river. And I'll give you everything from your temple so that you can reestablish the worship of God there. Now this is stressed in the Bible and it is stressed in the book of Isaiah. I want to read to you Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, that is the end of the 70 years captivity. Jeremiah 25. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing. Don't you just love that verse? It's about to drop something big on us. Saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And you say, wow, those are great verses about Cyrus knowing who called him to his foot and charged him with what he had to do. Right. You say, is, is that anywhere else in the Bible? Let's try the end of the historical books of the Bible, which is right in front of you right now. It's the, the Chronicles, the Kings, and the Samuels. Second Chronicles, and it's 36th chapter right there in front of you. Verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is not redundant, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Amen and amen. One of the greatest rulers in the history of the world, acknowledging by the Spirit of God upon him, that doesn't mean he's saved, by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God could come on an ass. And he could preach truth to Balaam the prophet. So don't, don't get too excited. There's no evidence at all in history that Cyrus ever converted. We, God doesn't need to use converted men. God can use unconverted men as well as converted men. The Lord God of heaven hath given me a charge to rebuild his house in Jerusalem. Let's come back to Isaiah 41. We can't go this slow. It is such a shame to read commentaries in a place like this. Do you want to hear a little survey of commentaries? Kelvin says, this is Abraham. 
Jameson Fawcett Brown say it's Jesus Christ. John Gill says it's the Apostle Paul. I know what you're saying to me. No way. No way, Ray. Yes. Cyrus is one of God's favorite men. Nebuchadnezzar was one of his favorite men, and Nebuchadnezzar did everything God wanted him to do, and Cyrus is one of his favorite men. Why do they want to get rid of Cyrus the Great? Is the fulfilled prophecy too much for them to bear? We love the fulfilled prophecy about Cyrus the Persian. I'm not trying to make fun of men. I'm trying to make fun of commentaries that they wrote. They should have got some children in their churches to look at it and read Isaiah 40 through 48 because you'd know that it's talking about Cyrus the Persian. The Apostle Paul came from the east and all nations were stubble to his bow and his sword. Anyway. Yeah. We have Cyrus the Great before us. It's the topic of the debate. So the que- in verse 1, let's have a debate, you idolaters. Who raised up this Cyrus the Persian and gave all nations to him and made him rule over kings? The exact terminology, not the exact f- same words, but the exact form of speech that Cyrus himself used about God giving him all the kingdoms of the world. He gave them as dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow. He, that is Cyrus, pursued them, these other nations, and passed safely, even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. This is incredible in military history, that this king went where he didn't scout and had not ever been before, and the Lord preserved him in his military maneuvers and campaigns. Go read sometime about Alexander and what he did to his army by marching them to India and then marching them back. He lost the majority of his army by going where he hadn't been before. Cyrus, it didn't matter because God was with him. God's given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Logistics in an army. An army marches on its stomach, and logistics becomes very difficult. Napoleon tried to take Russia and couldn't because Russia's too big. Russia dwarfs France, where your logistics may stand up. Logistics, the supply of an army, everything that it needs. You can do it in France, but you can't do it in Russia. Napoleon lost because he tried to take Russia. Hitler did the same thing. This is a verse. When God is with an army, nothing can stop them, even when they go in a place where they have not scouted it or ever been before. The Lord took care of Cyrus the Great. Who hath, verse 4, who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? Who did this particular large change of empires in the world and who's been doing it from creation oh yes i got a i sent it to you in the preparatory email it'll save me time i sent it to you in the preparatory email that paul on mars hill told those athens philosophers that god has before determined the bounds of all nations and the events that happen to them right. see he's preaching the same message that isaiah is writing down for us here Our God is in control of all nations, all military campaigns, all kings. He raises up one and puts down another for the benefit of his people. And he's been doing it from the beginning because I am the first and I am the last. I am he. Let's have a debate. I am he. Where's Baal about this time? Where's Mary about this time? Where's Muhammad, about this time, this is our God. 
Rejoice in Him. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. This excites me. I love this God. I want to serve this God. I'll live for this God. I'll die for this God. This God is the only God. This God deserves everything I can give Him. He can raise up Cyrus the Great. He can take care of me when I'm in trouble. Do you know what it says about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is this God incarnate? He is before all things. Colossians 1.17. He is before all things. I am the first, and I am with the last. Nothing is going to happen in this world where I am not there doing it. I've been declaring generations from the beginning, Cyrus is just one of them, and I'm going to continue doing it until the end of time as you know it. Praise the Lord. Verses 5 through 7. The isles saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid, drew near and came. They helped everyone his neighbor, and everyone said to his brother, Be of good courage. So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he that smootheth with the hammer, him that smote the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. And he fastened it with nails, that it should not be moved. 5 through 7. This is God mocking the idolater's response to the rise of Cyrus the Persian. Cyrus overthrew Babylon in one night. Cyrus took the Jews and sent them back, and the whole world knew. Did Cyrus put his decree in writing? I forgot 2 Chronicles 36 and Ezra 1 for a moment. Did Cyrus put the fact that God, had, the Lord God of Israel had charged him, and he was the Lord God of heaven? So the whole world knew Babylon was overthrown in one night by this Cyrus the Great, and he immediately, in his first year of office, sent the Jews back, the worshipers of Jehovah, and he said it was Jehovah that told him to do it, to go back and rebuild their capital city and their temple. What are we going to do about this? We have a serious problem on our hands. The Jews' God, Jehovah, must be God. He's scary. So look what... The Isles saw it. These pagan nations from verse 1 that were challenged to the debate, they saw it and they were afraid. And they drew near. But notice what they... They do not recognize if he's God, repent, reform, and worship him. Why can't everyone see that? Why couldn't Pharaoh get the message, repent, reform, and let Israel go? But they don't. And do you know what, brethren? If it weren't for the grace of God, neither would we. But He has given us a heart that loves His Word, and we want to repent. We've already wanted to repent this morning, and repent again, and reform, and worship Him. What a difference. They can't see. Even though Cyrus said, it's the Lord. Was it in all caps? I better go back and check. You know it was in all caps. It was Jehovah. Cyrus said, Jehovah of the Jews raised me up and gave all nations of the world to me. I've accomplished this by Jehovah. And so what do idolaters do? Let's make a new one. So you just read about them making a new one. They encouraged each other. It sounds like the Philistines. The Philistines came in battle in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6 against Israel, and Israel foolishly brought the Ark of the Covenant out to battle, 
and they shouted when the Ark of the Covenant arrived, and it says it echoed, and the Philistines heard it, and they heard the news, because their scouts brought back news, their drones had picked up, that the Ark of the Covenant had been brought into the, the, the battlefield. Right. And they said, oh no, this is the God that destroyed Egypt. Right. We're in serious trouble. And so it says they encouraged themselves. No, brethren, don't encourage yourselves in sin. If you can get others that want to go along with you in sin, run from them. Run from them. Right. Encourage yourself in the Lord. Get rid of those friends. Evil communications corrupt good manners. So there's unity, there's, there's strength in numbers to these people that are out there in the world. Pagans, idolaters, the world that, that's around us, the seven and a half billion. There's strength in numbers. If you talk to a Catholic, they'll tell you that they are the mother church in size. They want to tell you that. Muslims will tell you how large Muslim, Islam is and how many Muslims there are. You can stand alone if God's with you, brethren. And who knows how God is going to try you and tempt you and test you. These isles saw it. These pagans saw it, were afraid, drew near, encouraged each other. Be of good courage, and so they make themselves another God. Which brings us to verse 8. Much more could be said. Verses 8 and 9. Do you love inspired disjunctives? A disjunctive is a word like, but, or yet that sets a difference. And here we have a difference. In two verses, God declares his love for Israel. But thou, Israel, art my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Thou, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. What a difference God made in verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 41 compared to those idolaters that are encouraging themselves because their God won't encourage them. They're encouraging themselves to make a new God, but our God comes to Israel and says, I love you and have chosen you. You're my servant. You're my chosen. I've picked you. You didn't pick me for your God. I picked you to be my people, and I picked myself to be your God. And the progenitor of your entire nation, Abraham, was my friend. Right. What terms? This great God that raised up Cyrus the Great, the Persian, this great God that had called all nations and kingdoms and military campaigns from the very beginning said, I'm your friend. You're my friend. I've chosen you. You're my servant. The reason you worship me is because I chose you and I have not cast you away like I have cast others away. I cast some of your own people away when I took you to Babylon, but now I'm bringing you back home and I have cast all these idolatrous nations away because I only chose one nation, the smallest nation on earth, the nation of Israel. Beautiful. We have to keep going. There's a reason and you understand the reason. Verses 10 through 14. God told Israel not to fear their enemies. They're in Babylon. They've been there for 70 years. God's raised up Cyrus. He's about to issue his decree. What's going to happen to them? Daniel, when you read Daniel chapter 9, and he's reflecting upon the 70 years, realizes it's a traumatic point in the history of his nation. Verse 10. And here we go with the most well-known verse in Isaiah 41. Fear thou not. Because I've chosen you and not cast you away from verses 8 and 9, fear thou not. 
for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they that strive with thee shall perish. Thou shalt seek them, and shalt not find them, even them that contended with thee. They that war against thee shall be as nothing, and as a thing of naught. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel. I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Amen, amen and amen. Let me get to my favorite point in the whole chapter. There's nothing I want more than to be God's little worm. I want to be his worm. I've been worked up about, I couldn't wait to get here to tell you how much I want to be his worm. You say you are a worm. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to be his worm because he's going to be with me. I'm, I'm happy to tell the Lord I've got the strength of a worm. But he's got the strength of Jehovah God. Amen. And he's with me. And he holds my right hand. If you're taking a test and you feel like a worm, go to Isaiah 41 and get some strength. Whatever you're facing in your life and you feel like a worm, they despise you as a worm. The Lord is with worms. The Lord is not with those who think they have strength of their own. The Lord is with those who have no strength of their own, and He will be their strength. You don't need help understanding verse 10, do you? You poor Jews in Babylon, there's nothing to be afraid of. Fear thou not, I am with thee. Don't be dismayed or wonder what's going to happen. I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, I will help thee, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. I am going to get you safely back home with your way paid for, and you protected by the king's own troops. Beautiful. Glorious. I just want you to know the context of it. This is not some little thing like taking a test in calculus. That's a pretty big one, but this is bigger. This is bigger. This is being captive in Babylon for 70 years. How are you going to get home and get home safely? and be able to do what you need to do with all the nations that don't want you to build that capital city again or rebuild that temple. God is with them. Oh, verses 11 and 12, don't you worry about all those enemies you've had in the past. Don't you worry about any, any enemies you have in the present. You won't even be able to find them because I am with you and I will hold your right hand and we'll take a walk through the park and no matter what they do and how many howitzers they bring against you, I am with you. You won't be able to find them. Could you find Belshazzar the next morning? Not outside the cemetery. You say, how about a few years later? When a decree of genocide was approved in the Persian government. Oh, I guess that'd be a present tense enemy, wouldn't it? After they were released by Cyrus the Great, the Persian, then Ahasuerus signed that terrible legislation in the book of Esther. Well, what happened to all the enemies in the, Jew all the, enemies in the Persian Empire? All the Jewish enemies in the Persian Empire. Do you remember the story? Do you remember the story that uh, Ahasuerus said, I can't change the law, but I can tell you Jews that when the day comes around, you just get your swords and go out and kill everyone that doesn't like Jews. 
75,800. Because they only killed 500 the first day, Ahasuerus was disappointed in the results, he told his dear, beautiful wife. And so he said, I'll give you another day. And so they went and killed 75,000. Uh, how can you find them? Past enemies were Babylonians. Present enemies were Persians. Where was Haman? Swinging on his own gallows. Where were his ten sons? Swinging. This is your God. Is he your God? He's my God. I am he. I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand. Take it, Lord. Saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm, Jacob. Oh, yes, Lord. I'm happy to be your worm. I used to want to be your ass, but you've taught me. Now I'm your worm. And ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I will buy you back out of Babylon. When it uses the word redeem in the Bible, Redeem is an economic term, meaning to buy back from the claims of another. And Babylon had claims. They were captives of the Babylonian Empire. But God released them in one day through Cyrus. I'm your Redeemer. So that's verses 10 through 14. Enjoy. Let your faith grow. Let your faith be built up. Be the Lord's worm and let him come to your aid. Tell him when you open the Bible, I'm just a worm. Show me wondrous things out of thy law. Everything you have to do, tell him you're a worm. He loves to empower worms. If you read about Jehoshaphat and Asa, they told the Lord, we don't know what to do. This army's too big. Oh, stand still and watch and see the salvation of God. I'll do it for you. You won't even have to fight in the battle. This is the God we serve. He's your heavenly father by predestinated adoption. He's been calling the generations of his children from the beginning, as well as all the military maneuvers in the history of the world. Verses 15 and 16. Behold, Israel, Judah, look, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument having teeth. Thou shalt thresh the mountains and beat them small and shalt make the hills as chaff. Thou shalt fan them and the wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them and thou shalt rejoice in the Lord, and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. These two verses, God promised new power for Israel. The new power was Cyrus the Great on their side. The new power was Esther as queen of the Persian Empire on their side. This wasn't, this wasn't a new invention by Cyrus McCormick of some new threshing device of a literal sort. This is a similitude, because... You don't usually use threshing devices to thresh mountains or hills. This is a similitude. The mountains are the mighty men of these foreign governments and of the empires and the hills of the smaller nations against the Jews. I'm going to give you teeth in your th throughout Isaiah. We've already run into threshing as being one way of describing the defeat of an enemy because you pulverize it. You lay grain on a smooth floor and run a rough, heavy wheel over it, and it crushes it and breaks it apart so that the grain can be separated from the stalk and its shell. But I'm going to make a special one here, the Lord says. It's going to be new. It's going to be an invention. It's going to have sharp teeth on it. It's going to do a better job than has ever been seen before. What was it? Cyrus the Persian. You'll be able to turn these enemies into chaff 
and they'll just blow away. And if you're not able to blow away, blow them away, I'll send a tornado to blow them away. In the middle of verse 16, the whirlwind shall scatter them, and thou shalt rejoice in the Lord, and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. When God delivers us, we better make sure that we joy in Him, and rejoice in Him, and glory in Him for the great things that He has done. Verses 17 through 20. Not only will they be able to thresh all their enemies, God will provide the needed sustenance for them. Verses 17 through 20. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in high places, and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the shitta tree, and the myrtle, and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree and the pine and the box tree together, that they may see, and know, and consider, and understand together, that the hand of the Lord hath done this, and the Holy One of Israel hath created it. And amen. These are more similitudes. This is not just water because they were thirsty. So he gave them a cup of, so see, it's not a cup of water, it's rivers of water. It's springs of water. It's standing pools of water. It is all their needs, natural and spiritual, combined, satisfied by the miraculous provision of Almighty God, of both kinds. I suggested to you in your reading last night to read Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 35, and for those that did, you know the fulfillment of these verses. Because God blessed them by providing everything they needed, spiritually and naturally. Everything. He took care of them. Do you remember why, when the 70 years ended, that he wanted Tyre to get back to their business of fornication among the nations? Do you remember? Just giving you an example. We learned it. Why did God want the prostitute called Nation of Tyre to get back to work and get all of her uh, Johns back? It's in the Word of God. Why do you want that? So they could fund, they could fund Israel. Right. And send them durable clothing. Do you remember the chapter that ended with durable clothing? Because Tyre was going to fund them. Beautiful. The Lord did bless them. The Lord raised up prophets. There's two prophets that were, that were raised up for that remnant getting back to Jerusalem. They're in the Bible. They're toward the end of the Old Testament. They're very specifically for one purpose, to encourage the remnant. I'm giving you a spiritual blessing now. They are Haggai and Zechariah. Those two prophets are recorded in the book of Ezra as God sending them for one purpose, and that was to encourage that little remnant that had come back to Jerusalem and had that big pile of rubble in front of them that they needed to turn back into a city and back into a temple. The Lord was with them. And so this, these are similitudes in verses 17 through 20 of provision. Verses 15 and 16 are military campaigns and turnover of empires, the threshing of nations until they're chaff and they disappear like Babylon disappeared like Haman and his sons disappeared. Then they need provision. Not only do they need to escape Babylon and get back 900 miles to Jerusalem, 
They need provision. I mean, the place is desolate. And so the Lord provided for them in verses 17 through 20. There's so much that could be said. Oh, what filled them with laughter? You know, if you, some of you were, I also suggested that you might want to read Psalm 126. Psalm 126, when the captivity of Zion was turned, then our mouths were filled with laughter. The Lord, he, the Lord provided everything for them. He provided a renewal of agriculture. He provided prophets that were sent for them for the specific purpose of encouraging them when they were back to that pile of rubble. He put laughter in them. Their mouths are filled with laughter because the Lord was with them. And they were thirsty. They were discouraged. They were tired. They needed help. And the Lord was with them. Is a famine for the Word of God called being thirsty in the Bible? Like Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. And so here's the Lord supplying. Let's come to verse 21. God mocked idols' foresight and power. Now notice, the Lord called them to a debate. He told them what the topic of the debate is, verses 2 through 4. He showed them the response of idolaters is to make a new idol in verses 5 through 7. He identified the fact that he loved Israel and no one else, and that's why he delivered them out of Babylon. And then he told them, don't be afraid, because I'm going to destroy all your enemies, past and present. I'm going to give you the means to be able to take care of yourself and destroy them down to nothing. And I will provide everything you need, which gets us all the way through verse 20. Now the Lord goes back to mocking idols and their lack of foresight and power. Foresight being the ability to prophesy future events and bring them to pass. Verse 21, produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Or declare us things for to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods. Yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Behold, ye are of nothing, and your work of naught, an abomination is he that chooseth you. The only kind of a person that would ever choose idolatry is an abomination himself. Just like Psalm 115 and Psalm 135 says, they that worship them are like unto them. I have, I have loved Isaiah 41, 21 very, very much for a long time because it's the Lord's challenge to false religion. Produce your cause. If Muhammad is the greatest prophet, show us a prophecy that was fulfilled. Prove when it was given and let it have some details and show us its fulfillment. Muhammad didn't prophesy. Our God prophesied. And that is the measure of deity. Did you notice in verse 23 that we may know that ye are gods? When a being can foretell the future and bring it to pass, that is deity. That's a God. And our God did it. And our God can do it. And he did it in Isaiah 40s. And he did it with Cyrus the Great. He named him 150 years before he took office. This is the God we worship. He has no competitors. He has no peers. He alone is God. I am He, says He. Bring forth your strong reasons of deity in verse 21. 
Let them bring them forth. Show us idols. Show us idolaters. What's going to happen in the future? I love this one. Watch for you engineers. This is the process and the progression of events. Let in the middle of verse 22, let them show the former things. That's not former things to that point in time because that would be history and anyone can show that. Just watch. Progression. Process. Let them show the former things, what they be, not what they were, what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Take something that's in existence right now and let us consider it and give us the details of it and then show us what it's going to be later. What is going to happen to it? If that's too much for you, to take something present and put it out here in the future and show us the change, then just pick something in the future. It's how verse 22 goes. Look at the end of verse 22. Or declare us things for to come. If you can't show us the progress of something that is now in existence to a changed condition in the future, then just go ahead and tell us something in the future. I just love, I just love the Lord. He's saying, if this is too hard, I'll try to make it easier. Just invent something way out there that doesn't have anything to represent it in the present. But see, God was better than that. God took Babylon, that was a queen that was going to sit forever, and overthrew it in one night. Right. Remember the double walls? Remember the moat? Remember the Euphrates running water all around that place? The underground tunnels under the Euphrates? The city with the hanging gardens of the Babylonians? It was impregnable. <laughs> so do idolaters think. Just wait till we get to the chapters that talk about the gods of the Babylonians and how they're too heavy for the oxen pulling them. Oh, we got to go there. Hurry. Isaiah 46 and verse 1. Just, just a moment. These are, these are Babylon's gods. Bel boweth down. Bel boweth down. Nebo stoopeth. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaden. They are a burden to the weary beast. They stoop. They bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. Oh, that is... Can, can you see all these gods being dumped on a wagon? And you remember, they're made out of metal, so they're heavy. And the, the oxen can't even pull the stuff. I mean, it's just a mess. Idolatry and false religion are a mess. And we have the true religion of God. And that was in verses 21 through 24. When you hear us speak of the value of fulfilled prophecies, it is the best measure of a deity, one of the best measures, and it's one of the best measures of the integrity of the Bible as a supernatural book. Because the Bible has so many prophecies in it that it can be determined that it was written before the event occurred, and the event occurred the way that it's written in the Bible. It's a single sermon entitled The Glory of Fulfilled Prophecy from many years ago. That's verses 21 through 24. The Lord's back to mocking them. Verses 25 through 27. Now the Lord's going to take the credit that I'm able to raise up that man from the east back there in verse 2. The topic of this debate, you idols were utterly worthless. Look at verse 24. Behold, year of nothing. Here's the conclusion of the debate. You are of nothing and your work of naught. An abomination is he that chooseth you. Anybody that would choose to be an idolater is an abomination. You idols are, are unable to do a single thing. 
It's entire vanity and worthlessness. And so then the Lord takes up in verse 25. I. Do you like that pronoun there? I have raised up one from the north and he shall come. From the rising of the sun shall he call upon my name. Did he call upon his name? And he shall come upon princes as, as upon mortar and as the potter treadeth clay. They didn't have cement mixers back then to make mortar. What did you do? You stood in there and trampled it until it was the consistency that you wanted. And if you wanted clay, you did the same thing. And Cyrus trampled his enemies. Verse 26, who hath declared from the beginning that we may know and before time that we may say he is righteous. The proof of deity is the ability to foretell the future in perfect detail and accuracy. Who hath declared from the beginning that we may know and before time that we may say he is righteous, the Lord God of Israel. Yea, there is none that showeth. Yea, there is none that declareth. Yea, there is none that heareth your words. Because you idols don't show anything, you idols don't say anything, so no one can hear you idols. Is verse 26. The first, oh, this is sweet. The first shall say to Zion. The first what? The first trombone? The first, I am the first, and the last, I am he. The first shall say to Zion, behold, behold them. God, the first, told the Jews, told Zion, I'm sending the Persians. Watch them. Watch them come. Cyrus the Persian, by name, 150 years before he came. It's in Isaiah 44 and 45. Behold them. Behold, watch. I'm going to show you who's coming by name. Watch them. Do you see the contrast between that and verse 26? That the idols, the idols can't show anything. The idols can't say anything. And no one can hear words from idols because they can't speak at all. But then the next verse, the first shall say, Behold, behold them. I'm going to show you the Persians coming. I'm going to tell you about the Persians coming. And I will give to Jerusalem one that bringeth good tidings. Who brought good, good tidings? Cyrus the Great. I will give him for the cause of Jerusalem. He will say, The Lord God of heaven hath given me charge to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor, that when I asked of them could answer a word. Here's the conclusion to the debate. When God listened, to everything the idolaters could bring forward, I beheld there was no man that could give me one bit of advice, one bit of future prognostication, even among them, and there was no counselor that when I asked of them could answer a word, behold, they are all vanity, their works are nothing, their molten images are wind and confusion. They're a bunch of hot air. Amen. Wind and confusion. Right. This is the God that is your father and my father. If you believe on His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, today, this is your Father in heaven. He will help you. He will protect you. He will hold you by His right hand. Put your trust in Him. There's never been any other God to compete with Him. There's no other religion to compete with our religion. We have the best of it all by the grace of God. He's chosen us. 
And we are the seed of Abraham. Everything in this chapter is yours. Amen. Do you know that Galatians chapter 3 says, If ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Amen. The friend of God is your father in the faith, because he's the father of the faithful. We have it all. Love this God. Believe this God. Obey this God. And tell this God you are happy to be his worm. And he will save you. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.